Good morning, Vintage Church. How you doing? Y'all doing all right? Man. It is so good to see you again this weekend. For those of you who are new, maybe joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, I know if you come here regularly, we always take just a moment to thank all of our guests and those who are joining us. Can we give it up before we go any further for anyone who may be hanging out with us? Thank you so much for being here. If you are new or maybe you've just kind of been in and out uh, this summer, so far we've been in a series for the last several weeks. We've been taking a look at the Old Testament character of Joseph in the book of Genesis in our series Unbreakable, where together we've really just been learning some lessons for how you and I can actually thrive and succeed and move forward and grow in adversity. There's, no, there's not really one other uh, character in all of scripture whose life is talked about more than Joseph, only second to Abraham. And so God has a lot that he wants to show us in and through this story. Today we find a turning point uh, where Joseph is brought from the prison to the palace. And in that story, we see a lot about God's sovereignty. We're going to learn a lot about that today. Before I jump in to week five, I want to also do something that I promise to do every single week, uh, starting the last couple weeks, is update you on our There Is More Capital campaign. Now, being at the 830 service, uh, you absolutely love your pastor, you love your church, and so you make a lot of room for the packed services that are the 945 and the 1115. They are absolutely packed to the brim, there is no more space. And if you think it's crowded in here, it's even more crowded in our kids' space as well. And so last fall, we pitched a project, really a campaign across all of our locations where we're making more space for ministry. Here at Harker Heights, we're at a turning point in that project. We're looking at breaking ground next month, but we have a cash need. This is where we're at so far. Two weeks ago, we were at zero given. Now we're at 100,000. Come on, you can clap for that. That's pretty huge. Uh, we had significant movement on that this week. As you can see, we still have uh, a need of 100 about $140,000 to make sure that we can break ground and do that well. For those of you who are kind of wondering what it is we're doing, right outside this door to the right, there's a little booth pop-up that it has There Is More there on the TV. There's also some uh, campaign brochures. You can take a look at all the different projects. The Harker Heights project is really exciting because we're going to be building a brand new state-of-the-art auditorium on this side of the facility. Everything that's existing is going to turn into kid space. So walls are going to come in, AVL is going to come in, and we're going to be making space. It is very, very important that we do this as quickly as possible. And here's why. We are launching Vintage Christian Academy. That's pretty exciting. Yep. And so they need the space desperately. We're going to be popping up school for the first year in anticipation of getting this thing opened up for them. Uh, we also are going to be opening up various ministries and different things during the week. And so we absolutely need the space. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't given, give. If you've already pledged and you've already fulfilled your pledge, it wasn't big enough, you need to give more. Okay. And if you haven't even prayed, God, what would you have me do? to expand your kingdom, I wanna encourage you to do that. First of all, it's unbiblical, weird, and abusive for any pastor to ever tell you this is what you should give, unless you're not a tither. That's obedience. You should give the first 10%. That's in the Bible. But anything above and beyond that, God moves his people and he chooses to expand the kingdom at the pace of his people's generosity. Here's my job as your pastor. My job as your pastor is to remind you that if you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, what he's doing in our world through the local church, the Bible says God promises to take care of all all of your needs. Okay. And so that's important. A lot of times as believers, we're really excited about the blessing, but we're not all that pumped about the requirement. 
the Bible says that he provides seed to the sower. And so what I want to encourage you to do if you haven't done it, or maybe you've done it, you haven't done it in a while, I want you to stop and just pause. We have a need. I believe that if everyone just does what God tells them to do, we will have more than enough uh, to make this happen. And so we've got about a few more weeks before we need this, these funds to come in. I want to encourage you to pray. If you'd like more information, uh, there's all kinds of creative ways you can give as well. This yard sale is going to be really great to take some of the financial burden off of uh, the general fund. So that's going to be helpful for Vintage Christian Academy, uh, but we've got to break ground. So I want to encourage you to pray. If you have any more uh, questions or information, you can see me right outside here before or after service. I can answer your questions or get you the answer. You can also visit visit our website at vintage.church forward slash more, and you'll see all of the details there. Well, if you will turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41, we're going to read the first four verses. And something we started several weeks ago with this series is we've just decided, all right, we're going to honor God's word. One of the ways you honor God is you stand to your feet. Would you stand to your feet as we pray and, and, and we jump in to our passage? Genesis 41 verses one through four. After two years had passed, Joseph is in the prison, forgotten by the cupbearer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then the Pharaoh woke up. God, I thank you so much for everything that you're gonna do as we open up your word. I pray, God, that you would humble our hearts to hear what your spirit would wanna to say to each and every one of us right where we are. I pray, God, that on the other side of learning more about your people in your word, God, we would also learn more about what you've called us to do and how you've called us to live in our world. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. you may be seated. When we come to Genesis 41, Joseph has been in jail for two long years. Now we ended last week, we talked about what do you do when you wait? Most of life is waiting. We've got to just deal with that. When we read the Bible, we move from one mountaintop to one valley to one mountain. That's not, listen, most of the time your life is spent in the middle. We can't just rush past two years had passed. It's the only time it's mentioned. Two years, Joseph is doing what he's always done. He's disciplined. He's putting one step in front of the other. He's doing all that he can to be responsible with where he is. After two long years, it appears as though he's hit a dead end. He's been betrayed, sold as a slave, not once, but twice, falsely accused of rape, thrown in prison where he was forgotten about by the cupbearer to whom he helped in a big way. When Joseph said, remember me when you get out, I'm sure the man solemnly promised he wouldn't forget him, and yet he completely forgot about Joseph. Although Genesis 41 is a long chapter, 57 verses in total, we can summarize it in four key words. First, Pharaoh has a dream. Second, Joseph gives through the Holy Spirit the interpretation of the dream. Then Joseph gives the plan and is promoted. Pharaoh has two dreams, verses 1 through 13. Joseph gives him the interpretation, verses 14 through 32. Joseph gave him the plan, verses 33 through 36, and Pharaoh promotes him, verses 37 through 57. The whole chapter is right there. And if you take a bird's eye view of Genesis chapter four, we see a principle of walking with God. It's really a principle of being an image bearer and then a son or daughter of the king. It's this idea of God's sovereignty. I love this word sovereignty because in this word, okay, in case you guys sounds theological, it's really not. 
Okay, it's not all that complicated. It essentially means that God is in control. Does that mean that he causes everything? No. It does mean that if we won't quit, according to Romans 8, 28, he will use whatever we go through to our benefit. What is that? That's the idea of God's sovereignty. There's a word that's embedded in the word sovereignty. Do you see it? Reign. Either you reign or you rule in your own life. Either you are in the center of the universe or God is. Something that Joseph understood in each one of these chapters or epics of his life was that God, not him, is ultimately in control. He was well acquainted with all kinds of setbacks. He was well acquainted with fear. He was well acquainted with with what it means and what it feels like to be treated unjustly. But ultimately, he put his faith in God. I would say God. That's very important. And that's actually what we're going to pull out of this story because we have here about 13 years after he was originally thrown into that cistern, that empty cistern, that well by his brothers, 13, nearly 14 years after he was sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, after he was accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, even though Potiphar didn't believe her. We'll see that today. Even after he was completely forgotten by the cupbearer, we still see God's hand in sovereignty and the story pivots this week. There are seven signs of God's sovereignty. We see it. And something you've got to understand about sovereignty, usually you don't see it any other place than hindsight. Usually, as you're faithful, you're putting one step in front of the other. You get to a place in your life, okay, all the gray hairs and no hairs, you know what I'm talking about, where you can look back and if you're humble, you can see where along the way God was with you all the time. There's been this theological debate ranging forever, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken, obviously, but you get my point. It's this idea of do we choose God or does God choose us? Theologians would call this essentially, you know, uh, Calvinism or predestination or Arminianism, which is the opposite view. It essentially says, one view says, we hold our own lives in our hands and we can lose our salvation at the drop of a hat. The other side says that no matter what, no matter what, God is already predestined and that we don't necessarily have to do too much to get his plans to come true in our life. Here's the reality, like most theological arguments, it's usually somewhere in the middle. Somehow God chooses us, but we still have a choice. Somehow there's this great miracle that theologians love to complain about and even burn each other at the stakes over in history that really is a supernatural idea. Here's what I will tell you. The longer I walk with God, I remember when I first started walking with God, it was like God, God was like a genie in a bottle. You know, if I just rubbed him the right way, he would just do what I wanted. And I literally thought like I could lose my salvation just like that. The fa- if you're worried about that, chances are you actually are saved. Believers should think about that time where they're going to stand before God. I used to think that every little thing that I did mattered, you know? And if you, if you think like that, here's what happens. You fall into idols. For example, today in our culture, this isn't in my notes, but hey, why not? In our culture today, we have this idol of evangelism. We literally think that every little word and post on Facebook is going to be, is going to determine the eternal destination of every person. That is not true. God loves me so much more than to put my eternal destination in your hands. I'm, I'm going to say it again. God loves you and me more than just one little line across Twitter offending somebody. And as a result, here's what the church has done. Instead of fearing God, we start to fear man. What is that? You put yourself in the center of everything. Now, there's another ditch too. It's this idea that you don't have to do anything, that God doesn't, that somehow you can just sit on your holy assurance 
I said it. And God's just gonna take care of everything for you. And I'll, I'll be honest, like on the other side, like the strict Calvinists, they really do, they're kind of cruel. They're kind of mean. I remember I was looking into joining a church planning movement. And I looked at their theology and all of it looked awesome. I loved their theology. It was all perfect. Ultimately, I didn't decide to go with this particular organization. I was asked by somebody, they were like, why? All the theological things line up. Why not? I said, number one, you just seem to not like women. I don't like that. Something's just off. And number two, you're all jerks. <laughs> you're mean. You're rude. You're painted by the world's attitudes. You're, you're just overly critical of everything. You see, there's a tension between like what God does and what he requires you to do. That's really what biblical maturity, what growing up and into Christ is all about. It's really the outcome of living a gospel-centered life. The whole chapter is right there. Seven signs of God's sovereignty. First, God gave Pharaoh two, I'm going to say two, two dreams. This is important. God always repeats himself like every good parent. Let it be established by two or more witnesses. He says in Genesis 41, five through eight, Pharaoh fell asleep and dreamed a second time. We read about the first dream. Seven heads of grain, this time plump and ripe, came up from one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump, ripe ones. Then Pharaoh woke up and it was only a dream. But it repeated itself. When the morning came, he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. I want you to think about this for a moment. He summoned everyone. This is the height of Egyptian power. They would never again be this powerful. Think about it. The most powerful man in all the world has access to all the world has to offer, finds himself backed up against a problem that nobody could solve. Though Pharaoh was the mightiest man on earth, he was helpless to understand his own dream. Here's the principle. Money, power, worldly success may gain you many things, but it avails nothing in the realm of the spirit. Something was revealed to Pharaoh. The magicians couldn't figure it out. A thousand years of pagan religion could not produce what the king wanted. It was a big problem. You would read about kings and rulers after this that they would be so frustrated with all the wise people that in Daniel's day, they would threaten to put them all to death because they couldn't answer. It was a massive problem. The king's court started freaking out. It was in this moment, this problem, the cupbearer remembered his promise to Joseph two years later. The cupbearer remembered Joseph. At that moment, when all hope seemed lost, they were probably worried about their own necks. The cupbearer saw what happened to the baker, so did the entire kingdom. All of a sudden, grasping, the cupbearer remembered, hey, there was a guy that's really good at dreams. Genesis 41, 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guard was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us and each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man who shall not be named was hanged. This coincidence is actually a remarkable link in the chain of God's sovereignty. Imagine 
if Joseph would have gotten out one day, one month, one year earlier. He would not have been in a place, he would not have been reachable for his ultimate call and destiny. A lot of times what we see as setbacks are actually setups. And if we could learn to adjust our perspective away from ourself and away from our immediate circumstance and start asking questions, God, what would you want to do that's bigger than me? I have to believe Joseph had some kind of, of, of thinking in that he had seen just enough of favor. Remember, it says God was with Joseph. Even when nobody was with him, God was with him. And it's almost like affirming Joseph, saying, hey, you know what? I know it's dark now, okay, but hang on. I've got a bigger plan. This coincidence is a big, big deal. This is interesting, too. I thought about this uh, as we were doing our, our run-through, making sure the slides and everything were right. I started thinking about this, this here. Something that, that Pharaoh would have also done right away is verify who Joseph was. Notice it still says that he was the slave of Potiphar, the king of the captain's guard. Another telltale sign that Potiphar did not believe his wife, but did not have the guts to be truthful about it. Pharaoh would have went to one of his most trusted people and said, hey, what do you know about this Joseph fella? And I can just imagine Potiphar looking for an opportunity to get rid of all that guilt all those years at having that man unjustly put in that prison just to get along with his wife comes flooding forward. I can imagine he spoke highly of Joseph, so much so that Pharaoh brings Joseph from the dungeon to the palace. Number three, God uses Joseph to interpret the dreams. Genesis 41, 15, 14 through 15. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and no one can interpret. I love that. He has everyone there. And he says, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it. So I had to bring a Hebrew slave, you, to help. Think about this for a moment. I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. After changing clothes, he's brought before Joseph. What must Joseph have been thinking 24 hours before this moment? You gloss over it. We think, oh, he was expecting that. He had no idea that was gonna happen. 24 hours earlier, guess what he was doing? What he was always doing, being faithful, taking steps, growing, expanding, right? Wasn't pretty, it wasn't luxurious. He was being faithful. I love this. Look how Joseph answers the king of Egypt. Genesis 41, 16. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God, I wouldn't say God. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I should have hold this up here for just a moment. I am not able to. What a difference this Joseph is from the young boy who just couldn't wait to tell his brothers his dream. This is why I believe having diverse relationships, and I don't mean colors of skin, diverse. I mean different experiences. I mean like different age ranges around you. See, Joseph was so excited, he just had to go tell his brothers and they hated him for it. That's oftentimes what happens if all you have in your life are brothers. You don't tell your dreams to your brothers. You know why? Because they're, com they're competing, right? And most of us, we only have brothers because we've never been humble enough to actually receive from elders or fathers. You tell your dreams to fathers because fathers can see past the competition. 
They've gotten a little older, a little wiser. And this is not even necessarily a matter of age. I've seen lots of older men and women who should be mothers and fathers, spiritually and naturally, who refuse to. They remain boys and girls. I've seen that over and over again. But I've also seen younger people who've humbled themselves and have had incredible wisdom and guidance. The idea, though, is, is not all relationships are the same. Think about this in Joseph's world. First, he's like, look at the dream I had. I was in the center. Y'all were all bowing down to me. Now, he's standing over a decade later in front of the most powerful man in all the world, and he wants to remind him, remind him that it's not him, that it's God, and that he's going to give him a favorable response. Joseph knew that there's no way God would put him here without a favorable response. Hebrews echoes something like this. It's impossible without faith to please God, Hebrews says. Why? Because the person coming to God must believe that he is, which means he is God. He is all-powerful, but that's not enough. He must also believe that he's good. Joseph's mentioned in Hebrews around the definition of faith. Here he says, oh, he's going to give you a favorable one, but it's not going to come from me. It's going to come from him. He interprets the dream. I'm going to paraphrase Genesis 41, 17 to 32 because we have to do multiple services because we don't have enough chairs. So give if God puts it on your heart for our building. That'd be great. There are seven good years followed by seven bad years. There are interpretations here. Seven, there's going to be plenty. But then seven, all the plenty is going to be eaten up. Right? Joseph adds this to Genesis 41 through 32. It says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, O king, this is urgent. This isn't just important. This is urgent. He's going to make this happen. You better pay attention. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. God gives us supernatural confidence. You know, there's a difference between, between confidence and arrogance. I believe the difference is this. Competence. Competence. There's a war on competence in our world. Have you noticed that the people so hanging on to their totalitarian power are some of the most incompetent people you've ever known? What is that? It's arrogance. But some of the most competent people you know are some of the most humble. You know why? Because competent people know the more that they know, the more that they don't. There's something going on. Joseph's way different than he ever was before. He knows way more than he's ever known before, but it's remained, he's remained in this place of humility knowing that there's so much more, that God's so much bigger. Here we see Joseph provides a solution to the problem. Now, I'm gonna rush through these last few. I want you to get this one. This is a big one. God interprets the dream. Does not say, does not say anywhere in the passage that God gave the solution. Many times, God will give us dreams and then he puts us through the school of hard knocks to learn the solutions. He'll give us the path. He'll, he'll show us, hey, this is what I, I'm, I'm showing. He'll give us the dream, but then experience, faithfulness, day in and day out, provides the answer. Joseph provides a solution. Genesis 41, 33, so now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man to set him over Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during the good years that are coming under Pharaoh's authority. Store the grain in the city so that they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out 
by famine. <laughs> this is crazy. He literally, he gets this dream, and I can't imagine as Joseph's interpreting this dream. He begins to understand why he had to spend time in Potiphar's house. You see, Joseph came as a Hebrew slave. He didn't even speak Egyptian. He had to learn Egyptian. He came as a Hebrew slave. He had to learn the customs. He had to learn the economy. Remember, Potiphar's, Pharaoh, Potiphar's house was all put under him. Then he goes into the prison, and he learned a lot in prison too. He learned how to tell if someone was lying or not. He probably learned how to tell if someone was innocent or not. He probably paid attention to the scoundrels and to the deceptions and all the things that he would have had to have known. He gained wisdom in all of those places. I can't imagine as he's interpreting the stream. He's not inside thinking, wow, my brothers really aren't in control of my destiny. Wow, God really doesn't waste anything, anything. The plan wasn't part of the dream. It was a part of Joseph. This is important. The plan wasn't a part of the dream. It was a part of Joseph. You see, we have dreams in our life. And this is the problem with our microwave culture. We've talked about this every week. We want it and we want it now. And as a result, we live far below what we could. Why? Because we don't lead in. Let me say it this way. We overestimate what we can do in a minute, in a moment, in a day, in a week, we underestimate what being faithful over years will accomplish in our life, in our life. Next, God divinely positions Joseph to lead. It was God, and Joseph will recount this in weeks to come, it was God that put him there. It was God that gave Pharaoh the dream and Joseph the interpretation, but it was Joseph right, that would stay there. He goes on to say in Genesis 41, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who sees God's spirit in him? I love this. Pharaoh just consolidated all of Joseph's power that he would need for the next 14 years. All of the most powerful men are in the room. You know what Pharaoh does? Is there anyone in all of Egypt as smart and as filled with the spirit of God as this man? Anybody? It's powerful. Then Joseph turns, Pharaoh turns to Joseph, since God has made all known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all of my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Not just the land of Egypt, Pharaoh would put his own house under Joseph's authority. Who else did that that Pharaoh knew? Reputation does matter. Chances are him and Potiphar had a long conversation his house. He knew something. It wasn't just about the dream. He knew something about Joseph. He got the details. Talk about redemption. In this one place, Pharaoh consolidates all of Joseph's authority. Genesis 41, 41 through 46. He gave Joseph his signet ring. It's like having the king's credit card. He gave him linen clothing. It was a sign of high honor. He gave him a gold chain, another sign of royal authority. He gave him a chariot for transportation so he could go anywhere he wanted whenever he wanted. He gave him a wife he never thought he would ever have. He gave him authority second only to his own. It's not bad for a Hebrew slave, huh? Talk about the God of the underdog. That's the God we serve. There is no institution created by man that can stand between you and God's plan. This is so important for a world that is so resentful. It's tearing apart our world. 
men and women of God of every background, of every economic position, of every profession, of every race. We need to do away with this idea that somebody else holds our future in their hands. Joseph's story is so clear, so clear. Only God and Joseph are responsible. That's great. You can blame God, but he's perfect. So that only leaves you. It's some of the most freeing things you can ever know. Young person in here, listen to me. You're walking around, same story everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, there you are. You think, you think your solution is in some system. You think your solution is in some politician. I believe we should engage politically. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the future. But our hope isn't there. Our hope is in God. We fear God. He gives us the wisdom to stand like we should stand. That's, that's the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is not reparations. The story of Scripture is not resentfulness about the, the sins of your fathers. It's taking personal responsibility for your own and allowing God to use you to prepare you for what he has for you. Next, God gives Joseph a family. This is so powerful. Genesis 41, 50. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years the famine arrived. Aseneth, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all of my hardships in my father's house. And the second son, he named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Notice he didn't give his sons Egyptian names. Although he was in Egypt, he didn't let Egypt get into him. This is something that his ancestors would really struggle with as they exited Egypt 280 so years after this. Right? He didn't. He remembered. He gave him Hebrew names. The first one was, I'm going to forget. You know, sometimes in your life, you have to forget. You have to move on. Many times we say, God, why? God, why? God, why? That's the wrong question. The better question is, what's next? What's next? What's the next thing? Allow God to deal with the things you can't control. His first son meant that. The next one is, right? Fruitfulness wherever you are. He was in Egypt, and yet God made him successful. He was in a job that he hated, and yet God made him successful. He was in a place where he didn't belong, like every believer who professes Christ, and yet God blessed him, gave him a family. There are three stages of spiritual growth, and then I'll close with the last point. First, there's the I can't go back stage. At some point in your life, you have to go, you know what? I'm done. Burn the ships. I'm, complete, I'm completely committed. I believe Joseph did that. I believe he said, God, Lord, no matter what you have for me, I know that you're good. I know you're powerful and I'm not gonna quit. If I'm still breathing, I'm gonna live for you. The next is, I can't stay here. In other words, there's always something better. I can't go back to my previous life. Okay, but God's not done with me yet. Okay, I can't stay here. I've gotta grow. What does that look like in my family? What does that look like in my relationships? What does that look like in my job? What does that look like in my faith, in my church? And then finally, the decision, I must go forward. Ultimately, when God puts you in the room, he meant for you to be in. Will you act in faith, knowing that he's God and that he's good? As we close, we see that the dream is coming to pass. To, fair, to paraphrase Genesis 41, 47 and Genesis 41, 53 through 57, 
Here's essentially what happens over the next 14 years. It all happens just like God said. Seven good years, seven bad years. Standing before Pharaoh as we close. 13 years. It would take a year to mobilize. 14 years he would rule. Many more after that. But God would give him back every single year. And that year would be way better than the youngest brother in a giant family in Canaan. You see, anytime God wants to redeem something hard in your life, the word redemption, it doesn't just mean biblically to get back. God gives it back better. When Christ died on the cross for you, he didn't just pay for your sin. The Bible says he actually took off his own righteousness and gave it to you. That's the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is you're not going to die even though you deserve it. He paid for that on the cross. The Bible says another great exchange happened. He gave you grace. Grace is getting what you could never earn or deserve. That when God looks at you, he sees Christ. He doesn't see all your imperfections. He doesn't remember the conversation you had on the way to church that didn't end well. The argument, the thing you did, he sees Christ's righteousness. The Bible says that because of that, we can boldly approach his throne of grace. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much, Father, for the power of your word. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our church. I pray, God, that as we continue to go through this series, you would light in us a desire to finish. Father, that there would be a hope for people in here that maybe are struggling in their season. Lord, that they would be able to open the scriptures. They'd be able to read the life of Joseph. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, it would give them confidence and courage and faith to move forward. Father, I also pray for those in here that don't know you. I pray, God, they wouldn't leave here the same way that they came in. As heads are bowed, eyes are closed, we're almost done. Maybe you're in here and you're far from God. Listen, I don't have to embarrass you, call you out, call you up. I don't have to get a magnifying glass out, ask you an awkward question. You know if you're playing with God or not. My advice to you is stop playing with God. Get real about your walk with God. Maybe at one point you followed him, you're not following him today, make it right today. Maybe you're in here and you've never followed Christ and you've realized it's because you're arrogant. It's because you're puffed up in pride. And as I've opened God's word and you've learned the story of Joseph, maybe you're realizing that's the thing that needs to change. The Bible says you don't have to clean yourself up, but you do have to accept what Christ did for you on the cross. You do have to put your life under the power of the resurrection because it's in the resurrection that you have life and that your purpose is fulfilled. It's heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're in here today, you say, Pastor, I'm far from God. I don't want to be. I just want to pray for you. If you're in here today, you say, Pastor, that's me. Would you just acknowledge that by putting your hand up about halfway so I can see? Is there anyone here? Say, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're never the only one. Is there anyone else? Say, that's me. I see you. Thank you. In a moment, I'm a legion of prayer. There's no magic to the prayer. There's power, though, in the decision, the serious one that you make. I want to encourage you to say this prayer just loud enough where you can hear your own voice. Believe with all your heart. I believe God's going to meet you right where you are. For some of you, it's going to be a restart. For others, it's going to be a fresh start, a new start. Remember, as we pray, this isn't a parking place. It's an on-ramp. There's so much more that you have to learn. We're going to also give you some next steps after we pray. I want to encourage you, if you really meant it, say this prayer just loud enough where you can hear your own voice and then obey the instructions that we give. Church, we believe in what they're doing. Let's pray this prayer all together. Let's pray Jesus. Thank you for coming to this earth, for living a perfect life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I believe that you are good, and I believe you're God. I believe on the third day 
after you were killed on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you defeated death once and for all to give me life once and for all. So today, of my own free will, I choose to make you my Lord, my Savior, and my King. Lead me and guide me. Show me what's next. It's in your name that I pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Come on, church, let's put our hands together.